Orchard Park to Orchard Beach, from Fort Drum to Fort Wadsworth, and right here in the borough of Brooklyn. It's 5 p.m. in New York City and New York State, and so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from GothamGazette.com. We are in the midst of our Agenda 2019 work and uh, really looking ahead to what's going to be a really interesting and controversial determinative year in New York politics. Um, and this week is where our focus is on housing. Housing, which has obviously been a defining issue in the city for many years, many decades, uh, the intensity growing in recent years. Uh, ben, we had a conversation yesterday with a couple of housing advocates on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. Uh, I spoke with Reverend David Brawley of uh, East Brooklyn Congregations, who's a prime leader of some of the tenant advocacy around NYCHA. There's just so much going on. I mean, to refer to housing as an issue is actually kind of right. a, a bit of an abstraction. It's actually about 17,000 issues rolled into rolled into one. Right, it is. I mean, the list is really incredible when you think about the housing issues that are at play at the city and state levels. And of course, we can't forget the federal government and the role that uh, federal policy and budgets and grants, you know, uh, have, whether we're talking about public housing in New York City or other places in New York State and around the country or affordable housing development uh, funds and all sorts of policies related to, to both that are not budgetary necessarily, but certainly regulations and zoning and all sorts of other things. Um, but really, you know, when we think about housing for the end of this year, of course, but as we're focused on what are really going to be the, the important topics for 2019, at the top of the list, certainly we're talking about the the rent regulations that are set in Albany, at least for now. Um, you know, one thing I want to come back to at some point is there hasn't been that there's there's been a lot of focus on these rent regulations and what updates, enhancements, changes might be made in Albany, but there's been less discussion about returning control of those regulations to New York City. That is an interesting point. Actually, we published a op-ed earlier in the day at citylimits.org by Michael McKee, the longtime tenant pack leader, and he explained that the reason they haven't targeted the Erstat law is that the tenant movement, or at least his part of it, has decided that while it does strike them still as odd that Albany has this control over New York City's rent policies, that there really is growing need, significant growing need in other New York state cities and the upstate cities of Rochester and Buffalo and in Albany and in places like Yonkers and, and other smaller cities that are now becoming um, more dense and seeing more of this affordability crisis that increasingly, not just in New York, but across the country is hitting smaller and smaller cities. The idea being that if you were to return control to New York City, we'd be okay, but that those upstate cities need help and they need the combined power of a tenant organization, a tenant movement that includes New York City. So they are explicitly not targeting Erstat. Not that that necessarily would be a successful targeting anyway, but that there's a strategic reason for for not doing it. It's it's interesting. I mean, you hear folks like City Councilmember Jamani Williams, who's now running for public advocate, but has been a, a tenant organizer and leader uh, in the past and continues to have housing as a top priority, talk about her of repeal of Erstat and, and others do as well. So it's very interesting to have read McKee's uh, column and to think about that. Um, and it's, it's perhaps a topic worth discussing, maybe not on today's show where we have some other areas of focus, but uh, moving ahead, uh, certainly as we look at those rent regulations, whether we're talking about things like um, 
for the one million rent regulated, roughly rent regulated apartments in New York City, what landlords are allowed to do when the apartment becomes vacant in terms of hiking the rent, uh, when those when those apartments are allowed to be taken off the rent stabilization rolls. You know, these different regulations are immensely important uh, for all those tenants and, and people who even would move into some of those vacant rent rent regulated apartments. I mean, that's sort of the, the thing we, we we almost have this discussion as if everybody who's in a rent regulator apartment will never leave, but people do leave. And obviously some do pass away, um, but, pe- but people do leave those apartments and people try to snatch them up. Exactly. Yeah, there's so much to dig into there. And, and I think, you know, talking about the rent regulations um, debate that will be playing out in Albany this spring into summer, that's obviously just one of many processes that are, you know, housing is always an issue in New York City, but so much going on in 2019 from the Property Tax Commission to the Charter Revision Commission, considering ways to changing um, the, the way that the city does land use planning, rezonings in a few neighborhoods, the cities where we live, NYC, fair housing assessment, um, so much happening on, on those fronts. While we also continue to see ongoing developments in storylines that have been here for a while, like the mayor's affordable housing plan. We'll be speaking later today with Molly Park, who is the deputy commissioner who oversees development for the city's Department of Housing, Preservation and Development. Um, and of course, the homelessness crisis, which has been with us for a while, has been intensifying and, and at a pretty intense level for several years. That's our first topic today. And so we're going to welcome to the show uh, Giselle Routhier, who is the policy director at the Coalition for the Homeless. Welcome to WBAI. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Giselle, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. So, Giselle, we're coming up, I think, in February on the second anniversary of Mayor de Blasio unveiling his Turning the Tide Against Homelessness plan, which was his kind of reset of homeless policy. Uh, Since then, uh, has the tide started turning? It has not. I think, uh, you know, one of the main things that New Yorkers really uh, need to be aware of is that throughout the mayor's tenure now, we have either reached new record levels of homelessness or hovered around record levels of homelessness uh, the entire time. And we haven't broken that trajectory. We haven't been able to uh, to actually meaningfully reduce homelessness. Uh, and at the same time, he has this um, very ambitious plan to create three or preserve 300,000 units of affordable housing. And we don't see the connection between um, his plan to address homelessness and uh, the work that he's doing in the housing plan. And that's something we're really focused on currently. Talk a little bit about um, the the planks of the mayor's approach to homelessness that that you see and how those need to be tweaked or, or totally overhauled. I mean, what are what are some of the biggest pieces and how do you assess them? So the biggest piece that's lacking is the production of affordable housing. So in the mayor's Turning the Tide plan, he focused on improving the shelter system, kind of streamlining processes and bureaucracy, but made um, a very modest commitment to actually reduce the number of people who are currently homeless and living in the shelter system by only 2,500 people over five years. Um, that's that's not acceptable to us. It shouldn't be acceptable to any New Yorker, really. Um, and so what we're focusing on here is that the mayor actually has, uh, in another area of, of City Hall, a housing plan uh, where he's going to create or preserve 300,000 units of affordable housing. Right now, 
barely 5% of those units will be going to people who are currently homeless and have the greatest housing need. Um, and double that number, 10% are going to be subsidizing units that will have rents over $2,500 a month. We think that's a huge mismatch uh, and a huge missed opportunity to actually uh, meaningfully reduce homelessness in New York City. So what we've been calling for, and we've been doing this in partnership with 60 other organizations and other elected officials around the city, is calling for the mayor to set aside uh, 10% of his housing plan, so 30,000 units specifically for homeless New Yorkers, but with most of those units created through new construction, so built from the ground up. We want 24,000 new construction units, and that's important because there's distinction between new construction and preservation, and most of the preservation units are already occupied, um, and that's great. We want to keep those affordable, uh, but they don't present an opportunity to allow someone to move out of homelessness and into a new unit. Uh, So that's why we're focused on that new construction piece, and we think this is imminently feasible um, and a really doable goal. Mayor de Blasio, when he came into office, uh, one of the things on his table was the fact that under Mayor Bloomberg, an important, if flawed, method for getting people out of the shelters, which was the Advantage program, had uh, been mothballed by Mayor Bloomberg and by Governor Cuomo. He needed to replace that. And so he created several different uh, subsidy and voucher programs for moving people from shelter to housing. My understanding is that a fair number of people have moved out as a result of that. The mayor says it's a record number of placements in permanent housing. Um, is he correct that there have been some successes on that front? And if so, why do you think the, the numbers continue to rise? If, if, you, if you set records in terms of moving people from shelter to housing, uh, why are we still at record numbers? Yeah, great question. So he has uh, implemented uh, a new series of rental vouchers. And just to take a quick step back, we you know, a comprehensive plan to address homelessness does include the provision of vouchers. That's critically important. But we also know that the market that we're currently working in um, can only absorb so many vouchers. And so there has to also be that new construction piece. But when we're talking about vouchers, you know, the mayor has consistently, um, you know, put out this number that they've helped 100,000 people move out of shelters. So to kind of break that down a little bit, it's 100,000 people that have either moved out of shelter or avoided shelter over five years since he's first come into office. And so, um, and that also includes every single individual within every single household. So basically the 100,000 individuals is about 38,000 households. Um, And and then if you break it down by year, um, it's a little less than 7,000 households that are moving out of shelters into housing with the help uh, of, with the assistance of um, the rental vouchers. That's really important. We need to keep doing that. Um, It's not that much higher though than what some of the move out numbers looked like under kind of the later years of Giuliani and early years of Bloomberg when they were using a lot of Section 8 vouchers to move families out of shelter. But right now we actually have homelessness that's double what it was then. And so um, really his, his plan is not matching the scale of the need and that's where the new housing construction piece comes in. So say a little bit more. If, if that's um, if that's really the big ask from advocates like yourself and activists and experts, um, how does that play out? How does that work? Um, what is what is building so many of those units um, actually look like? 
the great thing is we actually, the mayor has actually set up an entire structure, an entire plan to finance the development of housing. Um, and I think, you know, HPD can speak to, to what that structure looks like, but they have term sheets in place and incentives in place, uh, financing in place to help developers um, who want to procure land and build new units uh, to make sure that that happens. And so what we're asking for is basically a realignment of this plan um, towards folks who need it most. Um, and that's been shown to be something that the mayor is very willing to do. He's already revised his plan upwards, invested more money in it. Um, and they're investing a lot of city money in this to make sure that units are subsidized. And we need the units to be subsidized at the level to help folks who need it most. And you and you advocate for, if that's necessary, there's fewer overall affordable housing units in the plan. Well, we're, we don't want to pull from any other units that are critically needed, particularly for extremely low-income households, low-income households, but we don't think the city should be subsidizing units for people making six figures, for people um, where the rents are $3,000 a month, where we're actually seeing that happen. Um, and that's not where the housing need is. We know that, and we see that in the data, that the vacancy rate for apartments at $2,500 a month is over 8%. It's not even in the emergency vacancy rate category anymore. But the vacancy rate for units under $800 a month is is virtually 1%. It's it's virtually nil. So what we need to be what we need the government to be focusing on is filling that market gap and helping folks who need it most. And that's that's what we're really pushing for. So we're entering uh, year six of uh, the De Blasio administration next year. Are you surprised um, by the mayor's insistence that his plan needs to be sort of widely stratified? To you know, I mean. He's 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 gotten frustrated at this point by how many times he's been asked about the plan and how it doesn't uh, tilt that much towards folks at the lower income levels or people coming out of homelessness. Um, And he's gotten frustrated about that because he's given the same answer many, many times. As you've said, he has made some adjustments to the plan. So it's there's a little bit of tension there between his his frustration about being asked and the fact that he actually has adjusted it somewhat. But are you surprised that this is the mayor that we've gotten based on the campaign he ran in 2013 or did you not have a sense that he was going to be you know sort of more uh, bold on this front I think it's surprising personally. I mean, um, you know, I think it's important to mention too that what we're asking for here is not the entire housing plan. We're asking for numbers that are commensurate with with the need that we're seeing and the record homelessness that New York City has been facing now for many, many years. Um, And so we're merely asking for 10% of the plan with uh, the vast majority of those units being brand new construction. Um, I don't think that's too much of an ask. Most homeless New Yorkers think uh, that's definitely not too much to ask. Uh, And I think most New Yorkers we've been talking talking to just evidenced by the groups that have signed on, the other other council members and city elected officials that have also shown support, uh, that this is imminently reasonable. And, and so it doesn't really make sense um, to me why, why, why he's stuck on this. We've been talking uh, about connecting the homelessness problem to the mayor's affordable housing plan. There are other areas of housing policy that it obviously connects with, too. Um, and one of them is uh, public housing and, and Section 8 and those housing resources. De Blasio made some moves to 
create a stronger link between shelters and NYCHA and existing Section 8 voucher resources. But uh, it's my impression that, that he also, it's your feeling he should also go farther on that front uh, as well, correct? Yeah, I think there's certainly more he can do there. Um, he did rightfully you know, reinstate from what had been zero availability under the previous uh, Mayor Bloomberg uh, to allow homeless families to once again access critical federal resources like Section 8 and, and um, public housing. Uh, he could be doing more of that. There are still more units that turn over um, every year. It's around four or 5,000 units that turn over. Um, about 2,000 or so of those units are currently going to folks who are homeless. Um, we think that could be higher. Uh, but that, is, that stock is also limited by the federal government and what we have available. Um, and so we do have to look at other ways to make sure that housing is being built um, and that housing stock is being expanded for folks who are homeless. How's the city doing in terms of um, uh, uh, admitting people to shelter? You know, there's been some controversy over uh, how much they encourage people to sort of double up or what they require from folks um, seeking shelter, admittance rates, et cetera. What, where, what have you seen on that front? Yeah, this is particularly challenging for families with children and for families uh, called adult families, so usually couples or, or a parent with an adult child have to go through a really lengthy and onerous application process to even gain access to shelters. So really people who finally make it into the shelter system um, are people who have proven to the city basically beyond a reasonable doubt they have nowhere else to go. Um, and some people don't make it through that process. The city will say, no, we think you can go uh, you know, live with this aunt that you've never lived with before because she has... Um, maybe you could fit a bed in this one bedroom that she has. So um, I think that's really challenging. It places a lot of burden on families and on kids. Um, And we're still seeing kind of the same levels of eligibility, uh, same low levels of eligibility for families with kids and adult families that we have been, you know, we had been seeing under previous mayors. So about 40% of families with children being found eligible for shelter and around 30% of adult families. So it's still an extremely challenging process. And I think those barriers are really still in place under this administration. And, uh, and that's frustrating. We're listening to, or we're talking with Giselle Rauthier from the Coalition for the Homeless. I'm Max and Murphy. If you have a call, a question for our guest, Please give us a ring at 212-209-2877. Giselle, the mayor's plan obviously calls for the mayor's homelessness plan for the construction of of shelters. And and I think that even among people who would like to see permanent housing as a bigger part of the plan, there's a recognition that uh, temporary shelters will probably be part of the picture going forward regardless. Um, Do you know how that effort is going? There was a talk about creating high-quality shelters. And obviously, in some of the neighborhoods where shelters have been discussed, there's been a real outpouring of animus. Do you think that that is a pure bigotry, or is there some legitimate gripe to the process the city uses to cite shelters? Well, one of the, I think, important things that does get lost in that conversation about the 90 new shelters is um, basically reducing the footprint of the shelter system that the city is attempting to do. So while they are proposing to build new or open new purpose-built shelters, they are planning and proposing to get out of really poor models of shelter that we know have been problematic for many, many, many years, like cluster sites uh, where the city is actually taking you know, rental units off, off the private market and using them as shelter. We don't want that practice to continue. It's just not good on many levels. So, And the city is actually reducing the use of some of those cluster site units. Uh, we would like to also ideally get out of commercial hotels. 
So that's an important piece of it as well. I mean, I think we want, um, you know, a shelter system in place, obviously, that can meet the needs of people who, who have the need for temporary emergency shelter who have become homeless. Um, and that's really important to, to continue to focus on the needs of folks. We try to bring it back, you know, when we, when we talk to communities about... You know, fighting any specific shelter isn't really going to help the root cause of the problem. Uh, what we need motiv- uh, mobilization from uh, citizens in New York is to really start to focus on what are we, what can we do to help reduce the need for shelters. The city will have to expand and open shelters if more people continue to become homeless. There's a right to shelter in New York City, um, and it's important for people to maintain, have that ability to not be on the streets. Um, so if we focus our attention on affordable housing, then we can actually start to think about okay, let's reduce the need for shelters. If we can actually reduce the shelter census, reduce the number of people in shelters, um, then we're going to have fewer and fewer of these conversations. Let's talk for a second just about the politics of this. Mayor de Blasio, over the course of his first term and so far of his second, there have been a couple cases where he has resisted uh, a move on a particular policy and ultimately been forced, basically, to do so, most famously on closing Rikers by other members of the body politic kind of pushing him in that direction. Um, On this issue of devoting a significantly larger share of the housing resources in NYCHA or in Section 8 or under his own Housing New York plan to the homeless. Is there a level of of political support among others uh, at the citywide level, the the speaker, uh, the public advocate, the comptroller, members of the city council? Do you you feel as though that idea has that level of backing that will ultimately be able to squeeze the mayor in that direction, or, or are you still working on that? We do, and we think the level of support will grow. I mean, right now we've got the majority of city elected officials on board. We've got the comptroller, the public advocate, four out of the five borough presidents, and the majority of city council members signed on specifically to the How's Our Future campaign. But in additionally, uh, Councilmember Salamanca is spearheading a bill that would um, require any specific development receiving city subsidies to have a, a, a floor, a minimum of 15% set aside uh, in new construction uh, buildings. So, um, and he's already gotten 24 sign-ons to that without um, doing a ton of work, you know, without really putting a ton of work. It's just introduced a few weeks ago. So it's something that's on people's minds. People understand the issue and the need. Um, and I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to get even more support from uh, from other members for that bill in particular and for the campaign moving forward. Let's talk a little bit about things at the state level. Uh, obviously, before we get to a next city budget, um, we're going to be dealing with the state budget season. And obviously, there's also coming out of this uh, election that we just had a lot of change coming to Albany in terms of Democrats taking full control of the state legislature and obviously continue to have a Democrat in the governor's office. So uh, what is your take on the landscape of in terms of what needs to happen or should happen at the state level? Um, with relation to affordable housing and homelessness? Yeah, there are a few things that we can hope, uh, that we're hoping for to to change at the state level uh, with respect to these issues. One being, um, you know, having the state kind of step up in its responsibility to to provide housing assistance for all New Yorkers. Um, And so there's uh, one proposal that's been in place for a few years now called Home Stability Support that's being championed by Assemblymember Hevesy. um, And that would basically provide a statewide rental assistance subsidy um, uh, for people who need it. People are on public assistance and to bridge the gap between what currently exists for a rental allowance, which is 
completely inadequate um, and what the rent actually is uh, for people that are currently homelessness, homeless or at risk of homelessness. And so that's really important and that's something we're going to continue to fight for um, in the coming session. Uh, the other issue is that the state has really systematically uh, dropped the ball or, or pulled out of its responsibility to cost share with the city. Uh, particularly with respect to shelters. Um, and so this, the, the city is bearing more and more uh, of the burden in order to, to help shelter folks who are currently homeless, and that's something that the state uh, could play a much bigger role in um, and could also as well with respect to rental assistance if they move forward on HSS. The state and city obviously have, have always or have in the past shared responsibility for supportive housing. De Blasio and Cuomo have gone in, in separate but similar directions on that. Uh, so far, the state's progress on supportive housing, has it been more or less in step with, with what it's promised? Well, right now we've got um, actual concrete commitment of only the first 6,000 units of the governor's 20,000 uh, unit commitment. And so we got five-year funding established for the first 6,000 units. Um, the state and developers are working to bring those units online. Those are all new construction, um, and there generally is a lag on that. So it's a little bit hard to tell, you know, kind of where in the, you know, whether they'll make that 6,000 number. Um, but the bigger issue is that we need the remainder of that commitment. Uh, and we need the governor to to come forward and commit to the funding for the remaining 14,000 units, which is not guaranteed at this point. Um, so that's really a concern. So we've got just a couple of minutes left with Giselle Ruthier of Coalition for the Homeless. If you want to give us a quick call on homelessness policy, uh, it's 212-209-2877. Giselle, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit... Um, stuck sometimes on you know the mayor's response that um you know he's he's got a plan for just about everything and not every you know not each plan can can get the resources that in an ideal world it might deserve and he needs partners at the state and federal level um and yet you know he he admittedly has a very modest plan for reducing the number of homeless folks from roughly 60,000 to 57500 uh, in shelter over over 5 years um is there a reason that you that you see that you and others haven't been able to break through to say this is the place to go bolder and devote more resources? Um, are, are you are you able to have conversations with with people in the policymaking areas of the administration and they have a more concrete answer for you? Uh, I mean, I think. The main place where the mayor remains stuck, and he's sort of been very public about this lately, is on the affordable housing development. And I think one one thing he says a lot is that he he's he has a comprehensive approach to addressing homelessness. Uh, but really, a comprehensive approach includes you know essentially three buckets. You need the provision of of rental vouchers to the extent that you can use them on the on the private market. You need a sufficient pipeline of permanent supportive housing for people who are currently living with uh, mental and physical disabilities and need those extra supports. But you actually need also the robust production of new, deeply affordable housing targeted specifically to people who are homeless. And so he's made progress on the first two, but he's lacking completely on the third. And without that, given the state that we're in with record homelessness, with the tight housing market, we're not going to be able to actually increase the supply of housing that's available to homeless New Yorkers without that government intervention. And the frustrating part is that the mayor does have this very bold plan um, to create affordable housing. 
and he's put it together and he's very committed to it and he's invested money in it, but it, it is in no way connected to his plan to reduce homelessness. And that, that's a huge gap. Just a few seconds left. I'm curious. People who travel widely, and, and I don't, my, my weekly trip to Brooklyn is about as exciting as it gets. <laughs> but people who go elsewhere in our great country note that other cities have huge homeless problems, and it's it's visible in, in tent cities and in encampments under freeways. And in New York City, for all the problems we have, we, we don't have that. We do have a shelter system that's very large, and its size is seen as an indicator of the problem, but also it's obviously an indicator of a certain kind of response. Compared to other cities... Are we doing fairly well against what appears to be a national scourge of, of homelessness? How do you how do you grade New York compared to the LA's and New Orleans's of the world? Well, we are very unique in that we have the right to shelter, and I think that's so critical um, because you're right. We don't see the scale of uh, street homelessness the way that it exists in some of those other cities that don't have a system in place to be able to provide an immediate bed and roof and food to folks who need it. Um, that's really critical. We need to understand that that's, that's an important part of who we are um, in New York. It's part of the Constitution, the aid and care of the needy, and that's how we establish a right to shelter. Um, with respect to housing, I think we're facing a lot of, the, you know, a lot of similar challenges as other major cities in the U.S. where we've got increased urbanization, we've got tighter housing markets, we've got luxury housing going up all over the place, and people being pushed out of what once were affordable uh, neighborhoods or affordable apartments. And so we're still facing that issue, and I don't think we're, um, you know, addressing it uh, in the way that it could be addressed, you know, given all the reasons we've talked about today. Um, So that's something that, that we need to keep pushing on. Well, Giselle Ruthier, the Policy Director at the Coalition for the Homeless, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. Ben Max of Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Jarrett, we're focused on housing today, and we just spoke with Giselle Ruthier, who is the very cogent, very sharp policy director for the Coalition for the Homeless. Uh, Your thoughts on some of the things she had to say? Uh, Well, she is very impressive in her command of that issue. We've had her on the podcast in the past to walk us through. And I think it's just interesting, you know, what she talked about at the top, the way that we, and I think as a a member of the media that covers housing, I think we probably do this too, the way we segment housing housing unhelpfully into these into these buckets when homelessness is an issue that touches on supportive housing it touches on the affordable housing plan on NYCHA it even intersects with the conversation we had at the outset about rent reform you know one of the arguments is that a driver of the homeless crisis homelessness crisis is eviction is people being priced out obviously the the rising of rents is part of that picture so just tying it into um, the different areas where the city has frankly done bold things um, and and the question of then how those are tailored to solving what is arguably I would say or maybe inarguably the most um, depressing and and dangerous part of the housing crisis 
so, I mean, I think one of the most important points of these conversations that are nece- aren't necessarily explicitly stated, but are sort of uh, either implicitly said or danced around are that the mayor has a separate homelessness plan from his affordable housing plan. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and that's sort of what you're getting at. And obviously there are state things that come into the picture, which as a as a mayor, you can't necessarily bake it all in because you don't have as much control over that. But why there isn't more of a very direct combination connection between the homelessness plan and the affordable housing plan, I don't understand. Um, and maybe that's part of where you get this what advocates say is too low of a percentage dedicated to people coming out of homelessness. It's where you get a lot more talk about building new shelters than you get building uh, new affordable housing, as Giselle Ruthier was was saying. Exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the things I wonder is how much of that is about um, the mayor's deciding what's right on policy and some of it is a, a totally legitimate focus on the politics, the politics of who gets what, the politics around homelessness, the question of whether you're creating a public benefit that is going to in some way uh, drive homelessness numbers, as was suspected happened in the past under Mayor Dinkins, all of that fits into it. Um, a fascinating topic, but there's more to talk about in housing. And so I'm very glad that we're joined on the line by Molly Park, who is the Deputy Commissioner for Development at HPD, the city's Department of Housing Preservation and Development. Deputy Commissioner Park, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hey there, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on. Um, So we don't often get to talk to deputy commissioners here on Max and Murphy. Um, So talk a little bit about your role in the city's uh, housing plan and what HPD does to affect it. Sure. I uh, oversee the development team at HPD, Housing Preservation and Development. So we are the financing arm for the new construction and preservation programs that make up the Housing New York plan, the the administration's plan to create and preserve 300,000 units of affordable housing. Uh, So we work with development teams starting from the very beginning of their project all the way through the construction closing, the construction process, and getting households into those units. And so um, say a bit more about your approach to that. I mean, what has been the sort of de Blasio administration approach to doing that work? Um, what are some of the, the areas that you focused on and the, the programs that you've tried to push ahead? Sure. So I, I think most people have heard of the Housing New York plan. Uh, it started as 200,000 units over over 10 years. It's now, as of last year, up to 300,000 units over 12 years. Within that, there are a number of different initiatives and policy priorities. It includes preservation programs that are about making sure that existing affordable buildings remain affordable and in good quality condition, about bringing buildings that are in not currently in affordable housing programs into affordable housing programs so that uh, tenants are protected from displacement in addition to having the, the improvement in housing quality and new construction, everything from uh, supportive housing, which is uh, permanent housing for chronically homeless individuals with services attached to home ownership to uh, family housing for extremely low-income housing uh, households up through middle-income families. Um, it's small buildings, you know, we are doing uh, two, three, four family homes. We're all the way up through, you know, rehab of 
thousand unit complexes. Uh, it is, it, we serve New York City. It is the full gamut of programs. Uh, and it, as I said, everything from ground up new construction through fairly moderate rehab. And so at HPD, uh, obviously, the mayor had to rely on you quite a bit in crafting this plan. Um, how, you know, there's been a lot of attention on sort of the segmentation of the plan in terms of the range of affordability of the different units. Obviously, there was mandatory inclusionary housing that was passed, a very uh, important, significant change to the city's zoning rules that require uh, affordable housing as part of, of new newly upzoned uh, plots or, or buildings. But at HPD, if you could explain to us a little bit about how you sort of crash, uh, craft the stratification of that plan in terms of levels of affordability, what are the, what are the things that go into uh, pumping out uh, those metrics? Sure. Let me start by saying we are developing and preserving units for a very broad spectrum of households, ranging from uh, extremely low income all the way up through middle income. All of our definitions are based on the federal concept of area median income, which is a, a standard that is established by the federal government. But we are able to toggle to different percentages of AMI. This is um, this is the language that we speak all the time. So just to put a little context around that, when we talk about building for an extremely low income household, that's defined as 30% of area median income or about $28,000 for a family of three. Um, when you go up to a, a middle income household at say 130% of area median income, that's $122,000 for a family of three. So we are serving across that spectrum. Um, and different programs are are serving different different types of in- income bands. Um, it depends a lot on the tools that we have available to do it and also on the need. Um, so the majority of the plan is weighted towards low-income households, uh, frankly, because that's where we see the majority of the need. So we have done, um, thus far, it is about 40% of the plan has been for extremely low and very low-income households, so very, the, the bottom, um, only about uh, 20% percent of the plan, uh, slightly less, has been for moderate and middle income households. So a lot of that has to do with where we see the need. Um, There are different tools that we use that are targeted to different income groups. So one of the primary tools that we have available to us is the federal low income housing tax credit. That is the federal government's, uh, at this point, virtually only investment in new housing construction that has historically been for households at 60% of area median income or below. So again, to translate that to a family of three, that's about $56,000 and below. Um, We just got uh, in one of the recent tax code changes a little bit of flexibility on that, but, but essentially that's where um, that federal investment is is oriented. Um, we have been increasingly investing in in the extremely low and very low income, um, and that is really a reflection of the substantial investment by the de Blasio administration. Um, it is frankly expensive to build for those lower income bands. Uh, Those units can support less private debt 
so it needs more subsidy. Uh, the mayor has made very substantial investments in, in the HPD capital budget to allow us to do that, uh, including most recently adding about $2 billion that was specifically earmarked for the extremely low and very low income housing. One of the things that we've seen with this plan is is some evolution. Uh, Mayor de Blasio has added more uh, of the units at the low end um, than initially conceived. Um, they're the biggest change obviously was expanding the the plan from 200,000 units to 300,000 units which of course made your job a lot more complicated <laughs> um, not sure you appreciated that but talk I, first of all the number 300,000 versus 200,000 where does that come from why why that number in particular is there a science to that is it just like a nice round number and, and along those same lines we've seen some evolution in the plan so far are further evolutions possible could the plan end up serving a higher percentage of low-income units than than even currently conceived? Um, So let me start with the 200 to 300. Uh, I am very thrilled. It did make my job more complicated, but I am thrilled to have it be more complicated. we the 200 number was an ambitious number when the administration started and I, I think the mayor has said a number of times that people told him it couldn't be done we were actually ahead of schedule so we took a hard look at what we were able to do and thought 25,000 units a year was an ambitious but achievable target and by adding two years to the plan we could make it 300,000 um, so so I think that was the approach it was um, it is ambitious. We, we fight for every unit, but we are able to get it done and we are on track. Um, and I think one of the things that we've done to make sure that we stay on track is as we rolled out to uh, Housing New York 2.0, it wasn't just about the numbers. It was about adding new initiatives that would build our pipeline and serve segments of the housing market that we hadn't been able to reach before. So if I could call out just a few of them, uh, we rolled out our open door program, which is new construction of co-op and condo buildings for uh, moderate and middle-income New Yorkers. We closed our first one uh, last year. We have our Seniors First program, which is designed to help the growing population of seniors in New York City uh, remain stably and affordably housed. It includes both new construction of senior housing and also initiatives to help those who want to remain where they are age in place safely. It can be things as simple as uh, non-skid flooring and, and grab bars that are incorporated into rehab scopes, but doing that uh, I think is going to be critical to to address the growing senior population in the city. Uh, A program that I am really excited about that we've been, been rolling out is our Neighborhood Pillars program which will help uh, nonprofits and other mission-based developers acquire existing rent-stabilized but not otherwise affordable housing. This is, is, you know, colloquially referred to as the naturally occurring affordable housing stock, but which is certainly at risk in a market like New York City's. If we can acquire those buildings, help nonprofits acquire those buildings and get them into regulatory agreements, we can keep them as long-term stable affordable housing. Um, And then one that we rolled out just very recently is our SHARE NYC program to look at new models of shared housing in New York City. Um, Something like two-thirds of New York City households are one- and two-person 
um, households, but only about 40, 45% of the housing stock in the city of New York is studios and one-bedroom apartments. So we want to be experimenting with new models to serve that those small households. Um, so we have a request for expression of interest out on the street right now where we're asking um, people to bring us ideas for projects that look at very small units um, or units where there's shared living space, like shared kitchens, shared living rooms, um, potentially even shared bathrooms. Uh, and and unusually for us, this uh, initiative is as much about housing management as it is about housing development and housing finance. We want, really want to think about uh, how we serve households in new and different ways and, and keep it a successful part of the housing stock. I want to ask you just a couple quick follow-ups there. Um, if you could explain a little bit more about how the Neighborhood Pillars program works and, and uh, your your sort of forecast on that and, and how the financing uh, of that works? Sure. So uh, development partners, primarily nonprofits, but can be others as well, uh, will identify buildings and we will be providing some technical assistance to help them identify or, you know, because there are many of the nonprofits and neighborhood routes, they may know opportunities um, to acquire buildings with uh, I think most of them will go through the New York City Acquisition Fund, which is an existing tool that the city helped to create to help uh, mission-based developers acquire either land or buildings for affordable housing. Um, then that will come in. HPD will then work with the developer and with the acquisition fund to make a longer-term loan and, and sign a regulatory agreement to go along with it so that the rents that are in existence will, will get locked into place. Um, tenants will be able to stay where they are. They will, you know, presumably most of them have rent-stabilized leases. They will continue to have rent-stabilized leases at, at affordable levels going into the future. If the buildings need rehab, we will finance the rehabilitation. Um, but the idea is that rent stabilization, while an incredibly critical piece of the affordable housing landscape, is not in and of itself an affordable housing um, guarantee. There, there are ways that within a rent-stabilized environment that it's still possible to see some relatively significant uh, rent increases, but it, once the program comes into an HPD-regulated space, there's a lot more protection for tenants there. And maybe this relates to the Share NYC program, or maybe maybe it's a, a broader question. I think it's a broader question. But how does your work factor in what I believe are are and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know some of the trends around more people living alone. Uh, how do you how do you think about, or how does it factor into your work that um, the city needs to you know reconsider some of of the the studio apartments, the one bedroom apartments, um, you know that are available as opposed to planning for more family apartments? Um, certainly. Well, I, I would say I think there's need across the board, but yes, we recognize that there is there is a lot of small households in New York City, individuals and couples. Um, Share NYC is a perfect example of that. I think that is, is we are trying to remain innovative and creative and, and experiment with these alternative ways of housing some of these small households. You know, people want want privacy, they want their own space, but sometimes want to be in communities. I think we also, uh, we, within any of our buildings, really stress a diversity of housing sizes. So yes, we are building fam in any given building. We have 
uh, two and three family units, but we're also making sure that we're building studios and ones, um, and that has been an important part of our of our housing mix. Um, has has that tilted at all, or not really? I mean, is that you know, has that been an adjustment that you folks have felt like you had to make based on the data, or has it not really been that significant of a part of the calculation? I think it's something that we're very conscious of, um, and Sharon YC is our particular foray into that space, but uh, it has always been a part of HPD's programs to try and, and build for a variety of different New Yorkers. I just want to connect the first and second parts of today's show, if I can. We had Giselle Ruthier from Coalition for the Homeless on, and to some degree this this uh, ties into a question you've talked about already, but specifically the homeless population, the number of units in the plan dedicated to the homeless, what led to the percentage that they, um, they are set to receive, uh, given the depth of the homelessness crisis? Why not devote more of the plan to addressing people who, um, let's face it, if they're in shelters, already are living in in city-created housing and moving them to more permanent housing, which I think everyone realizes is part of the solution to that problem. Sure. HPD is very committed to developing housing for homeless households. We've done about 9,000 units through the plan thus far. Um, That's about 10% of our rental production. Uh, Virtually all of our programs include a requirement that developers set aside a percentage of their units for homeless households. It's anywhere from 10% up to about 60%. So we have a very strong and, and really growing that share of units that are set aside for homeless households. Uh, it's something we're deeply committed to. That being said, I think it's really important that we do build for a full spectrum of New Yorkers. One of the things that I have been really proud of, our emphasis over the last couple of years, is making sure that we have been emphasizing that every project includes both homeless units and units for extremely low and very low income households that are not in the shelter system. Um, because in many cases, you're talking about households with very similar incomes and very similar housing needs. And I think what we want to make sure that we are addressing is is very much the need of that family as opposed to where that person spent uh, the last night because because a household of a family of three making $28,000 is at risk of homelessness if they are not in fact in the shelter system now so being able to serve that full spectrum of families is really important to us I guess, I guess my follow-up to that um, is why not make almost all of the plan for those two groups, the people coming, experiencing homelessness, coming out of homelessness, and the sort of very low to, to moderately low-income folks, why not make, you know, 80% of, of the homelessness plan for, for those two groups? And maybe it reduces the, the overall number of units, but why not address uh, where the need is most acute? And maybe that requires at the same time a faster approach to upzoning certain neighborhoods so that more market rate housing is coming online. But, but why not, um, you know, why such a, I guess, why such a quote unquote balance plan and why not more of a plan that's really maybe fewer units, but dedicated to the most acute need? Sure. Uh, A number of answers to that question. First, I want to just clarify where we do stand. Um, About 15% of units that we have done to date are for middle and moderate income households. So we do have an overwhelmingly low income plan. 
Um, low income in this case goes up to 80% of area median income, um, so that's about $75,000 for a family of three. I realize there's differences of opinion on the need for that particular constituency, but um, we are building for a range of New Yorkers, and we are concentrated towards the, the lower end of the spectrum. Um, but I think a very important point that I want to make is that it is, a, it is critically important that the housing that we finance is sustainable um, and in good condition and a neighborhood and a family asset for a very long term. And in order to do that, buildings have to have the pay the super to make and do all of the things that it takes to operate a building. And the rents that are affordable to an extremely low income household are not enough to pay the basic operating costs of the building. So by, ha- by developing mixed income buildings, not only are we serving a range of New Yorkers for which there is, is real housing need um, without getting into the merits of of one particular family over another, I think we can all agree that for a family that's making $60,000 a year, a family of three in New York City, that they're facing challenges as well. Um, So there's need across the board, but also having that spectrum means that the revenue that that building is bringing in is enough to keep it as a strong neighborhood asset over a very long period of time. If we were serving only the very lowest income households, the rents that those households could afford to pay isn't enough to operate the building. So in the housing plan, we're in the midst of something that is supposed to run, uh, I believe, to the year 2026, which is, you know, beyond the term of the of the current mayor. And, and I'm, so it's going to be a while before we can definitively answer this question. But I'm curious, how do you think we'll be able to measure whether or not this plan succeeded? That's a question people have asked, you know, whether it's, it's merely the generation of a certain number of units in particular income batches, or whether there's going to be some qualitative effect on the city, on its housing market, some other measure to say that plan did what it accomplished more broadly. What do you think we, sh- we should look at, um, you know, several years from now about whether this plan is successful or not? How will we measure that? Sure. I mean, I think the the quantitative measures of how many units have we started and all of the different breakdowns of how many are for homeless and how many are for senior and and, um, new construction versus preservation, those are all things that we can and do look at all the time. But I think it's also um, incredibly meaningful and part of the reason I do this job and find this job so so meaningful to go and walk through neighborhoods where there has been uh, many years of affordable housing investment through through HPD, um, you know, walking through parts of the South Bronx, for example, and you can see building after building after building. And for those of us who know the know the developments, know that those are uh, HPD financed affordable housing buildings, and you can imagine the landscape without those projects there. And you know, not hard to find photographs of what those neighborhoods look like without those buildings there, Um, and they're very, very different kinds of communities. Um, We also, I think it's really important, I try and get out and get away from the computer periodically and making sure that we're talking to the residents of the people for whom who live in the buildings that, that we've financed, where you know, knowing that rent is going to be about 30% of income and that there is predictability in that and that the buildings are going to be safe and affordable over the long term and that kids are going to be able to stay in their schools over the long term and other kinds of things, that is a life, that's a game changer. Um, 
And that's also a really important measure of success. Molly Park from HPD, let me ask you one final question and, and uh, we'll let you go. And we appreciate the time. Is there one thing um, that you would point to from the state or the federal government or one from each that you need in the coming couple of years to make producing affordable housing in New York City possible or more possible? Absolutely. I think I mentioned earlier that the federal low-income housing tax credit is our single most important federal financing source. Um, we, it is, a, uh, it is a very valuable tool. But in the aftermath of the presidential election in 2016, and then again following tax reform, we lost about 20% of the value uh, of that subsidy source. Um, you know, very simply put, it is a tax credit that uh, corporations buy, and when corporations in order, it, that generates equity for affordable housing, and it generates tax benefits for them when they owe um, less in the way of taxes. They're going to pay less for those tax credits. So the um, changes at the federal level have been uh, immensely costly to the city. There are various proposals out there to um, to help with the low-income housing tax credit, To and they get very technical, so I won't get in deeply into the weeds, but um, some changes that have been floated that would be a, a real game-changer for us in terms of, of restoring that equity source. Okay. Well, we appreciate that thought, and we appreciate you joining us. Thanks very much for being on Max and Murphy. Well, Ben, we come to the end of another show, and I just want to remind viewers that while housing issues affect people waiting for housing, housing waiting to be built, obviously some of us in housing are dealing with issues. One that comes up a lot is outages of gas, electricity, hot water, cold water, heat. If you've experienced anything like that, if you're a renter or an owner in the city, we want to know about it. Text OUTAGE to 646-916-3930. We're doing a crowdsourced reporting project. OUTAGE to 646-916-3930, and we Reporting on that, Ben Moore, agenda 19, 2019 this week on our sites, citylimits.org, gothamgazette.com. But for now, you've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. 